Let's begin with prayer. Let's uh, stand and ask God's blessing on our study this evening. Heavenly Father, we give thee thanks for another opportunity, uh, a privilege that is ours to gather, uh, to be able to study thy word in an open and in public way, to not, as in many parts of the world, to have to hide, to go underground. Lord, we do not take these blessings for granted, and we thank thee that thy spirit does attend uh, the reading and the instruction of thy word. And we call upon thee to send forth thy spirit into our hearts mightily and our minds that we would be led in thy truth and not misled and deceived by our own thoughts and our own imaginations. Lord, forgive us of our sins as we uh, study thy word this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. John 16, and beginning with verse 8, we'll read through verse 12, John 16, verses 8 through 12. I'll start with verse 7 from last week's study, and we'll read through verse 12. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they believe not on me of righteousness, because I go to my Father, and you see me no more, of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. I said uh, we're focusing on 8 through 12. Actually, uh, we are starting with verse 7, so the Verse 7 is what we will first look at. In the last uh, study, you'll recall that Jesus, in chapters 15 and 16, is preparing his disciples for the hatred uh, that they're going to face, uh, for the persecution that is going to come their way. Uh, Jesus does not want to uh, have them think that everything is just going to be so rosy in the future. I mean, at this point, the disciples are still not understanding that Jesus is not going to set up his throne in Jerusalem and overcome the Romans at that time. They've not comprehended what God's plan is. And so this whole idea of Jesus leaving is, is just really, though he had spoken about it before, it's just not registered uh, in their minds and in their hearts what uh, the uh, plan of God is, that Jesus must go to 
the cross. He must become the Savior. Uh, and in his resurrection and ascension into heaven, uh, he becomes the king and he reigns from heaven rather than reigning upon a throne in Jerusalem. This is, again, uh, something they're going to understand, but at this point, uh, they're not there yet. And we'll see how Jesus even alludes to that uh, at the end of the section we're covering this evening. What's really interesting, as we noted last week, just again by way of review, is what Jesus says in verse 2, they shall put you out of the synagogues, that is, excommunicate you from the synagogues, yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God service. So uh, that's how deceived men can become. They can be so sincerely convinced by way of their own darkness, by way of their own um, imaginations that are contrary to the truth, and primarily being misled by the enemy to think that in putting to death the apostles and the early Christians and persecuting them, that they would be doing God a service, that they would be doing it for God's good. Uh, if that does not, again, warn us about our own uh, deceptions, uh, even, as, uh, even as Christians, we have to be ever so careful because uh, it is the truth. It is not because uh, we're so smart or we're so intelligent or so um, righteous and holy, uh, but it is, again, because... Uh, God has shown us mercy to open our minds uh, to the truth. This, this idea of us being those who are capable of being deceived is, is not a reason to say, well, who can know the truth? Let's just throw it all out the door uh, because uh, I, I can't uh, know for sure I'm not being deceived. Uh, that, that's not what the Lord would have us to take away from this because the Holy Spirit does work within our heart to help us to understand God's word and not simply to take one particular verse uh, and try to interpret that verse out of context, but to take that verse within the chapter where that verse occurs what does that verse mean within the chapter? What does that verse mean within the book uh, from the Old or New Testament in which that verse occurs? What does that verse mean uh, within the Old Testament? What does that verse mean within the New Testament? What does that verse mean uh, as we compare all of Scripture with that? So it's very easy uh, to prove almost anything we want to prove by taking a verse and taking the verse out of context. But we have to interpret, and that's the infallible rule of interpretation, is the Bible itself. If we believe the Bible is infallible and capable of error, then we need an infallible interpreter. And I'm not an infallible interpreter. None of us are. The Holy Spirit is. 
the word of God is. And so how do we understand and have assurance that what we're reading is the truth? Well, the Holy Spirit directs us uh, in our study to look at all of the passages that we can, beginning more um, around the context of that verse or that passage, and then little concentric circles, like throwing a, a rock into a pond, and you see the circles you know, going out and out. Well, that's the way we begin in trying to understand uh, God's Word, likewise. So, um, here, we, here we again see, this was certainly true historically, in the Roman Catholic persecution of the, of the Protestant Church in various nations. Uh, the, I don't doubt that, uh, that they were sincere in what they thought they were doing as far as doing God a service. But that's where we have to, again, realize sincerity in and of itself is not what determines truth. Jehovah's Witnesses can be very sincere. Mormons can be very sincere. Atheists can be very sincere. People can be very sincere, but they're sincerely also deceived, sincerely misled. And again, the only way that we ourselves are not sincerely misled and deceived is by comparing Scripture with Scripture and the Holy Spirit again um, taking the Word of God opening our minds, our hearts to what is being said in that passage and in all passages that we compare it to in God's Word. Uh, likewise, uh, there were Protestants who persecuted the Covenanters. Uh, the the uh, prelates, um, the uh, Church of England, uh, at the time of the accession of Charles II to the throne and the um, various innovations that they brought into the Church of Scotland where the Church of Scotland uh, left uh, its Presbyterianism uh, because uh, except for a, a kind of Presbyterianism that acknowledged that Charles II was a a lawful and rightful ruler, even in his uh, seeking dominion over the church. And covenanters resisted that and said, Jesus alone is king of the church. Um, uh, he has no authority to rule over the church. And again, uh, I'm, I'm not going to question the sincerity of those uh, who became part of that persecuting force against Faithful covenanters who were standing for biblical truth and uh, going into their homes, uh, taking husbands out of the home, uh, shooting them right in front of their wife, wives and children, and uh, chasing ministers into the caves and into the fields. Um, again, I, I think that they honestly believed that they were doing God a service. But that just shows how deceived we can become uh, when we are not led by the Word of God, when we're not led by the Holy Spirit. That's not a reason, again, to throw up our arms and say, as I said earlier, 
uh, that we um, have no assurance or we can have no assurance, uh, we can indeed uh, know the truth. That's why, again, God has given to us the truth, but uh, we have to be those who are diligent, faithful, to compare Scripture with Scripture, and um, that, again, even as you hear me uh, teach and as you hear me preach, um, you don't just accept my word for something uh, without, again, being a good, a good Berean. The Bereans, again, receive the word that Paul and Silas preached. They received it with all readiness of mind, Acts 17, 11. And, and they daily examined those things to see whether they were so. They examined what they were saying, comparing it to the Scripture. Uh, the Scripture they had was the Old Testament at that time. They didn't have the New Testament. So they, they compared what Paul and Silas were preaching to what Scripture taught. And that's, that's what we are all called to do, is to be good Bereans. And that's what our forefathers did by putting scriptural truths into confessions of faith and catechisms. That was their goal, was to be able to articulate what the Bible teaches and for us to be able to, to compare what they say to what the scripture says. We don't receive the confession of faith or any of our subordinate standards as infallible in themselves. No church council, no synod, um, is infallible, incapable of error. doesn't mean they necessarily did err. Um, we're not saying that uh, what they have written um, is in error, but they're not infallible, incapable of error. None of us are. Uh, so, again, the, the idea that we must uh, constantly be vigilant, knowledgeable of what God says in his word, comparing what is said to Holy Scripture. And we, we see that the Lord Jesus says in verse 7, uh, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away, for if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you, but if I depart, I will send him unto you. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Holy Trinity. When it's, Jesus says that it's expedient that he go away so that he can send the Holy Spirit. Um, that seems very odd and strange, uh, perhaps to our way of thinking. How could it be good, expedient? How could it be good for them, for Jesus not, for him not to be present with them bodily? Uh, that, that, again, initially seems... Um, like, uh, you know, what greater privilege, what greater delight and joy and help could one find than Jesus being among them? But Jesus was in a human body. He could not be everywhere at the same time. The Holy Spirit uh, that is sent by Jesus 
not replaces, but uh, comes in his name, comes in the name of the Lord Jesus to do all that Jesus did with his disciples when he was here upon the earth. And so Lord Jesus is making it very clear that for the Holy Spirit to come has great advantages to God's people, even over him being here bodily. And so we need to, again, never take for granted that the Holy Spirit is among us. The Holy Spirit even dwells within us. That the Holy Spirit uh, is our teacher, our, our instructor. Uh, he is our comforter. As it says in verse 7, the comforter will not come unto you, but if I depart, I will send him unto you. And uh, I think we noted last week uh, that word uh, paraclete um, is, is a word not only that means or can be translated comforter, but it also can be translated advocate. And so uh, we'll, we'll talk about that in just a moment, uh, how that might relate to the words of the Lord Jesus if we translate that in English as advocate rather than as comforter. He certainly is a comforter, uh, and uh, his words, his promises, his presence all comfort us. But we're going to also uh, address that other meaning uh, namely advocate as well. Was this the first time that the Holy Spirit uh, had been in the world? Uh, when Jesus says, it, it's, it's expedient that I go to be with my Father so that then I will send my Spirit. Was he sending his Spirit for the first time? Was the Spirit not present uh, in the world up until that time? Well, no, of course, um, we see... Throughout the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit's activity, working to uh, save uh, his, his people, working to sanctify his people, uh, even uh, revealing uh, his word unto his people, giving them knowledge of the future by way of prophecy, the Holy Spirit and gifts that he gave to them, um, extraordinary gifts. Uh, were, again, the work of God's Holy Spirit in uh, the Old Testament saints. So Jesus is not saying here, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit for the first time when I ascended to heaven. But he's talking about a coming of the Holy Spirit that could not happen until he ascended into heaven and was enthroned at the right hand of God. There is a special blessing associated with uh, Christ's ascension, his being seated and enthroned at the right hand of God. When he uh, was enthroned and as uh, his coronation, if you will, as King of Kings and Lord of Lords uh, at the right hand of God, uh, Acts 2 says, uh, Peter speaking, that the, the Lord Jesus as the exalted Lord and King, poured forth his spirit as a gift, 
as a gift upon his people, upon his church at that particular time. Uh, again, since the Holy Spirit is given to minister in the name of Christ, to minister in, um, in lieu of the bodily presence of Christ, that couldn't happen until the, Holy, until the Lord Jesus mm -hmm. had ascended into heaven. That couldn't have happened while he was still upon earth if it was necessary for Jesus to first ascend. And so this is a very unique coming of the Holy Spirit that's uh, referred to here, uh, that uh, the Holy Spirit would uh, bring the royal blessings of the Lord Jesus by way of increased gifts, uh, by way of increased graces, increased power in understanding uh, his truth, and increased uh, degrees and extent of evangelism throughout the world. Uh, those types of things increased exponentially after the giving of the Holy Spirit on, on the day of Pentecost. That was the gift of Jesus upon his church to give them that. Now, is that a, is that a um, pattern for how we as Christians then receive the Holy Spirit? Do we also receive the Holy Spirit in two stages? As I said, the only reason they received the Holy Spirit in two stages uh, at that time was because Jesus says that he could not send the Holy Spirit unless he ascended into heaven. But once the Holy Spirit is given by the exalted and enthroned Lord Jesus, we receive that blessing of the Holy Spirit, not by way of a second work of grace, we receive all of the Spirit, we receive His grace, His mercy, His power. We receive all of that uh, when we uh, are converted, when we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't come in the same way after that. Uh, it is, again, uh, becomes the possession of the church to receive the, the Spirit of God. It says, and Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, <clears throat> by one spirit, or we could translate that as um, with, with or by, for by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit, all of us. Okay, that's not uh, some of us, all of us have been baptized with one spirit and made to drink of one spirit. So that, that blessing that was uh, extraordinary, was unique, because it had to wait for Christ's ascension and enthronement to the right, right hand of God. Now that he is enthroned, the spirit is here, and he is here to indwell us. He, he is here to give us those, those blessings uh, that fell upon God's people uh, at that time in Acts chapter 2. I just want to say one other thing about the idea of Jesus says it's expedient for you that I go away. What, what is uh, expedient for us 
what is helpful and good for us may not always seem like it's good for us. I'm sure to the disciples, when they heard, it's expedient that I go away, because if I don't go away, the Spirit will not come, the Comforter will not come. I'm sure they didn't see how that would be good for them, that the Lord Jesus be taken from them bodily. And we can struggle, likewise, in our Christian life, with regard to things that God obviously ordains, and because he ordains them for our life, and because he loves us as his children, that he's saying to us, it's expedient that this come into your life. It's expedient that you do not receive this particular thing for which you're praying. It's expedient. And what we need to, again, realize is that God knows what's expedient for us. We think we know what's expedient for us, but God ultimately knows. The disciples thought they knew what was expedient for them, and that was for Jesus to remain there bodily. But Jesus says, no, that's not expedient for you, that I be here, remain here bodily, uh, but that I send the Holy Spirit to be among you and to dwell within you. Here, as I said, Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as the Comforter in verse 7, the Comforter. But another translation of the same Greek word uh, is uh, an advocate. What is an advocate? Well, we don't use that term so much, but it's basically... Uh, a defense lawyer. It's basically one who represents you, advocates for you, uh, is what an advocate is. And the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, would be uh, sent uh, by the Lord Jesus to be our advocate. Now, Jesus is our advocate at the right hand of God. Uh, He's our heavenly advocate. But the Holy Spirit is um, also an advocate here upon the earth. Uh, The Holy Spirit, as we'll see, uh, advocates uh, in our defense and advocates against those who are Christ's enemies. Uh, He functions in that way. That is a ministry of the Holy Spirit in that he... He reproves, and we're looking more now at verse 8. When he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. So in his coming as an advocate, he powerfully reproves, refutes, and stops the mouths of Christ's enemies through his truth, through the truth of Jesus Christ. So picture this, if you, you know, just kind of mentally think of this as how the Holy Spirit advocates for us, is our advocate here upon the earth. The Holy Spirit 
uh, as it were, stands at the bar of each man's conscience who opposes Christ and reproves them, reproves them for disbelieving the truth about their sin, reproves them, refutes them, stops their mouth about the need that they have for Christ's righteousness, reproves them for not thinking about, ignoring, neglecting, denying the judgment that is to come. In various places in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit uh, advocates uh, for his people in defending them, defending the apostles, defending the people of God, and then advocates against the enemies, judging them within their own consciences. And this he still does. The Holy Spirit yet does so in the consciences of those who oppose the truth. The Holy Spirit, as our advocate, as the advocate of God's people, he defends us and he condemns those who oppose Christ and oppose us as we stand for Christ. And this is just a, an application of that truth. He, he always, the Holy Spirit is always right. He's always um, saying, uh, declaring what's right, standing for what is faithful and true. Um, the Holy Spirit uh, is, is God Almighty. But when we think about, again, the role of the Holy Spirit as our advocate, we, I think many times, forget that he is our advocate when others oppose us. Sometimes I think we think that this is all upon our um, heads, that we have to win the argument that we have to defeat verbally the enemy. We have to stop their mouths by our arguments. We need, in our own judgment many times, we feel as though we need to verbally beat those who oppose Christ into submission by our words, by our arguments the dear ones we do not need to put anybody into a a verbal headlock and wait for them to say i give up i give up i give up that's not our place that's our advocate's place we need to be faithful, yes. We need to, to know what we believe and to give, even if it's very simple, to give the hope that lies within us, to be able to say to, to someone that we believe in Jesus Christ 
And we believe the truth that is revealed concerning Christ, that he died upon the cross. He was buried for three days. He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God. So we need to certainly bear a faithful testimony. But we don't put people, as it were, into that verbal headlock and squeeze it and squeeze it and squeeze it until they say, I give up. Dear ones, that's the work of the Holy Spirit as our advocate who defends us and who rebukes those who oppose the Lord Jesus. In fact, when we feel or act as though we uh, will not stop with our verbal arguments until someone does say, I give up, it may be because that others are opposing us more than we see them as opposing Christ, that we take it more as a personal matter that we have to bring them to see our point of view. And we're not going to give up until they do. That can happen in our homes. That can happen in our marriages. That can happen between spouses. That we do not give up. We are relentless. And we are going to press it and press it and press it until until our husband or our wife says, I give up. Or it can happen with, with uh, between parents and children. Now, I'm not saying at all that, that uh, parents should instruct and teach their children and that children should submit, uh, certainly, to their parents uh, and not be rebellious and... and uh, have that attitude. I'm not going to listen to you. I'm not going to, no matter what you say, no matter what you, the way you present, I'm not going to listen to you. That's, that's obviously wrong on the part of a child. But even as parents, I think that it's important that we realize that, especially as our children get older, we should give them reasons, biblical reasons for the truth, uh, that we would have them and desire them to believe why they should believe it from, the, from Scripture, from history. We should give them all of that. But again, we're not the advocate. We have to realize we're not the Holy Spirit. We can present the truth and should, but it's the Holy Spirit that does the work. We need to know again, um, and seek God's wisdom with regard to our presentation of the truth uh, to our children, whether it's a biblical truth, whether it's something very um, uh, mundane and ordinary, you know, something in the house that needs to be done in a particular way or whatever, that we, we certainly uh, call our children uh, to to do what's right and to do it for the right reason. But again, 
if we simply think that it's our arguments as parents that's going to win the day, then then I think that we are misled. We're deceived as parents. This, this needs to be, even in our children's submission, the work of the Holy Spirit. We have to do what God calls us to do in presenting the truth, but it's the work of the Holy Spirit to change their hearts and to give them the desire to do so. That's where we should spend, again, so much of our time in prayer for our children that they want to do what is right because the Holy Spirit, the Advocate, is working in them. See, it's not, it, it's not about us winning an argument. Uh, when that's really uh, the issue, whether we win an argument or whether we lose an argument, then, then it, it's, the focus is entirely wrong. Uh, that, that isn't what we ought to be focusing on, whether we win or lose an argument. Our focus should be on being as faithful to Jesus Christ, to the gospel of Christ, to the commandments of Christ, in loving obedience to Christ, as we can. We're going to fall short, but again, as much as lies within us, that that's our desire. Showing the mercy of Christ, loving one another. So what if we win an argument, you know, with our spouse or with, you know, siblings? So what if you win an argument and yet alienate and estrange that person unnecessarily in the process? What have you really won? So let's be faithful in word and deed, but let's also realize what the work of the Holy Spirit is as advocate. Verse uh, 9, 10, and 11, the Lord Jesus begins to break down what he had said in verse 8 concerning the Holy Spirit, when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Now the Lord Jesus spends few words on each of these. He'll reprove the world of sin, verse 9, because they believe not on me. This is perhaps... The chief sin, we can talk about all manner of ungodliness in the world today, but the chief sin of all sins is not to believe in Jesus Christ, to disbelieve Jesus Christ. In fact, from that, that disbelief of Christ, which is a basically idolatry because if we're not Worshiping God, we're worshiping then something else other than God. That's where, that's the root of disbelief. And we're not willing to worship him as he's revealed himself and to believe and to receive him. And so um, that leads to all manner of sins. So again, 
there's nothing wrong with applying God's law when we're uh, seeking to um, present the gospel to someone. There's nothing wrong with talking about sin that we all fall into and going through the commandments of God as to the fact that we are sinners. All of us are. But let's realize the root sin of all sin really is unbelief. That's what Jesus says, of sin because they believe not on me. That's the chief sin that leads to all other sins, that we do not truly, that the world does not truly believe in Jesus Christ. And then the Lord Jesus goes to the next item that the Holy Spirit as advocate will reprove. Not only will he reprove of sin because they believe not on Christ, but then secondly, uh, the Holy Spirit will reprove of righteousness because Jesus says, I go to my Father and you see me no more. So he'll reprove the world of righteousness. He'll shut their mouths with regard to righteousness. He will, as an advocate, um, reprove this particular um, second item. What does this refer to, reprove of righteousness? Well, he's speaking, I believe, of his own righteousness. He'll reprove the world of their lack of righteousness, the world's lack of righteousness, and that all our righteousness is as filthy rags. That we do not have a righteousness at all, no matter how moral we may think we are, and good we may think we are, that we... You know, we haven't murdered anyone um, when, Je in fact, Jesus says we have. If we uh, have hatred in our hearts, if we have bitterness in our hearts, if we have resentment in our hearts, um, if we have called somebody a, a name in anger, um, Jesus says, yeah, we have broken the sixth commandment. Uh, it's inward um, heart murder. It's mouth uh, tongue uh, murder that uh, that uh, that we've committed um, and so we could go through all the commandments that way to demonstrate yeah uh, we we fail in every way um, uh, every one of us to meet up the standard of righteousness that, that God requires um, none of us are righteous Paul says in Romans 3 no not one, except Jesus. And that's why, again, we need the Lord Jesus. That's why we need his righteousness. That's why, again, he lived a holy and perfect life, not committing one sin, not violating God's commandments even once in thought, word, or deed. And the glory of uh, our salvation, the glory of justification, 
by faith alone is that we receive and God, when we believe in Christ, we are imputed, credited to our account, his perfect righteousness. How was that perfect righteousness of Christ uh, confirmed? It was confirmed by Christ's resurrection. How do we know that the perfect righteousness of Christ will be imputed to us when we believe because Jesus didn't remain in the grave, because Jesus was raised from the dead, means that God accepted his sacrifice for us, means that his righteousness is sufficient, all sufficient for us when we believe, when we trust in him. His resurrection and his ascension to God's right hand uh, confirms that as well. Uh, so again, the, even the uh, centurion uh, who was at uh, the cross and who oversaw the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in Luke 23, 46 said this, of Jesus, certainly this was a righteous man, a righteous man. Here's, not, here's one who was not schooled in, trained in theology. Uh, he observed with his eyes, he heard with his ears those six hours of Christ being upon the cross, perhaps even as he was going through the torment uh, within the halls of the high priests being beaten, uh, being uh, hit in the face with their fist, uh, being crowned with a crown of thorns, all of this. Perhaps he witnessed that as well, but he saw more than enough to be able to say this was a righteous man. And again... Jesus confirmed all that he ever said about himself by his resurrection and his ascension into heaven. Verse 11, the Holy Spirit as advocate when Jesus sends him will reprove the world of judgment, of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. Holy Spirit will stop the mouths of the world also as advocate in defending his people, but also in condemning his enemies for their sin, for their opposition to Christ by bringing to their minds there's coming a day of judgment. And we uh, cannot avoid that. We cannot uh, uh, put that on a later date on our calendar and say, uh, I think I'll put that off, uh, that day of judgment. I'll put that off. God's appointed uh, a day for us to die, and after that, the judgment. And so God has appointed a day of judgment. The Holy Spirit will reprove the world as it relates to 
judgment. And that's very important again. Uh, obviously, um, the Holy Spirit can certainly use that in the life as, as uh, unconverted people hear that there is coming a judgment day. Paul, when he preached, uh, he didn't avoid talking about a judgment day that was coming. We need to, again, remember that as well. Uh, for us, however, uh, judgment day is not a day of sorrow. It's not a day of grief and torment. It's a day of rejoicing. Uh, even uh, when the Lord exposes our sins, he doesn't expose our sins uh, on the day of judgment uh, to our torment and our anguish, but he exposes our sins to magnify his love, his mercy, and his grace. That no one can say, certainly not ourselves, that we can boast in who we are. That we can boast in anything about ourselves because we're all going to have, even as those who are redeemed and saved by Christ, we're all going to have so much sin and our hearts, our thoughts, our words, and our deeds will be exposed. And we think now how shameful that's going to be. But again, we, we have to realize it's going to be against the backdrop of Christ, our righteousness. Christ, who loves us and cares for us. That judgment will not be in a sense of condemnation, that judgment will in exposing who we are in ourselves and who he is in his mercy, his love, his grace, his salvation, so that he receives all the glory. And we cast all of our crowns at his feet. Because the prince of the world, this world is judged. Who is he talking about? He's talking about Satan. Satan is judged, Jesus says. Um, how did Jesus demonstrate that Satan was already judged? Well, by casting out demons. Satan didn't have authority over Christ. Satan didn't have the authority to stay and his demons to stay within those whom Christ delivered, they came out screaming and shouting, the demons did, because they didn't want to come out. But they had to come out because Jesus cast them out, because he is the one who's overcome the enemy. Uh, his power and his miracles. Um, do you think Satan wanted Jesus to rise from the dead uh, after his crucifixion and his burial? Of course not. Satan wanted Jesus to stay in the grave. But Satan didn't have power over the Lord Jesus. And this is our comfort that Satan is judged. He, in being called the prince of this world, doesn't mean that he, he's a, a prince who has rightful authority, divine right to rule in this world. Only Jesus has divine authority, divine right to rule in this world. So why is he called a prince? Because the world follows him. 
not because he has a divine right to do so, but because the world follows him, because they consent, whether they realize it or not, because anyone who does not follow Christ as Savior and as Lord consents, unwittingly perhaps, but nevertheless consents for Satan to rule over them as the prince of this world. But let us, again, keep in mind, that's why we need never fear the enemy because he is already judged. Jesus has judged him. Um, as we look out across the world today, and we see the wars, and we see the threats, and we see the suffering, and we see so many things uh, about uh, what is happening, the immorality, the godlessness, um, in every way, just, uh, uh, it's, it's no longer hidden in darkness, it, it, it is out in the open, and it is terrible to see. But uh, again, we need to understand uh, that is no indication that Jesus is not king because whatever Satan does, he does by way of permission from King Jesus. For King Jesus' own, own holy purposes, he allows Satan, he permits Satan as he did with Job, to take certain uh, steps and to exercise a certain, uh, a kind of power. But it is never uh, an, um, a power that is absolute in nature. It is always a, a power that Satan has that is under the kingship and lordship of Christ. Satan can only go as far as Jesus, King Jesus, allows him to go. And it's always with a purpose, a good purpose that Jesus does so, to show forth in the end, or even in the midst of this, to show his mercy in saving people out of the kingdom of Satan and bringing them into the kingdom of Christ, in restraining them at certain times, because if Jesus didn't restrain this world and its leaders, if he didn't restrain Satan, this, this place would be unlivable. This place would be hell itself if Jesus didn't restrain the evil. And so King Jesus is the one who rules, and he is going to turn everything that we face into a, a purpose a plan that he has uh, to glorify him and to build us up as his people. Lastly, verse 12, Jesus says, I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. And I'll just uh, end the study this evening with just a couple of thoughts on, on what Jesus says there. Isn't that kind of interesting Jesus says, I have yet many things to say unto you. In other words, there's, there's more truth about various topics that I want to share with you. But um, you're not ready to bear them right now. Now, 
Could Jesus not have given them the ability to bear them right then and there? Of course he could. Later on in John 18, when Jesus is betrayed by Judas in the garden, Jesus says to the soldiers, to the priests that come to arrest him, let these others go, his disciples, let them go. Um, and he quotes an Old Testament passage, uh, which to the effect says, um, and I'm paraphrasing, let them go that they basically uh, not deny me, that they not fall away uh, as a result of uh, the persecution that they would be immediately put, and pressure that they would be put under. Let them go. Now, again, that's very odd, isn't it? Because couldn't Jesus give them the ability to withstand the persecution at that time so that even if they were not let go, uh, that they would stand faithful? Could he not have given the, the, uh, the power to Peter not to deny him three times? Of course, in all of these instances I've mentioned, and the one that Jesus is talking about here in John 16, that they're not able to bear it right then and there, therefore he's not going to share with them more. If he could give them that ability, then what's, the, what's really um, happening here? What does the Lord want us to take away as we end our study this evening? And I, I would just suggest to you, propose to you, that though Jesus could have given them the ability to bear whatever, whatever Jesus wanted to share with them at that time, that this is more for our benefit, for our help, to realize that we need to be sensitive as to information, truth that we share with one another, that we need to be thinking, is this the appropriate time? Is this the right time? Is this uh, person ready to receive this uh, uh, that I'm about to share with them? How much can they uh, uh, understand? God can give them that, but again, from our perspective, are we even thinking that way, or are we just going to unload and just give them everything? Are we going to think in terms of what will be most profitable and beneficial to that person? Maybe a spouse, it may be it may be a child, it may be a friend, a family member. Uh, we need to give the truth. Jesus wasn't saying, I'm I'm not going to give you the truth. He was saying, you're not ready right now to receive all that I want to give to you, though he could have given them the ability to do so. And so we're not saying likewise when we think in terms of, of what people are ready and able to receive where they are. We're not saying that we should withhold the truth forever or that we should never share with them the truth, but we need to be wise and seek God's wisdom as to people um, and how they are ready to receive it. Um, sometimes uh, people and 
particular individuals may have the idea uh, that you're going to hear the truth whether you like it or not. You know, that kind of an attitude. Uh, and I think that um, perhaps, again, um, I'm not saying that on all occasions that there may not be certain circumstances or situations where we press forward, uh, even in the face of opposition. But I think that what the Lord is showing us here, we need to, again, be wise uh, and uh, by God's Spirit be able to uh, say, say basically, um, uh, the way I present the truth I pray the Holy Spirit works in that person, brings them along, um, line upon line, precept upon precept, as Isaiah says, a little here, a little there. Um, rather than, you know, uh, kicking the door down and, and uh, taking that kind of an approach, taking our Bibles and beating people over the head with our Bibles. Um, uh, again, I think the Lord is giving to us that type of a, uh, admonition uh, in his word. Be sensitive, be careful, be wise in how you present the truth to people um, so that, at least from our perspective, that they would be... Um, uh, ready, willing to receive it, and, uh, and uh, that would be, again, obviously the work of the Holy Spirit, but uh, we, uh, in dependence upon the Holy Spirit, would take those kinds of steps in our presentation of the, of the truth. Okay, let's uh, stand in prayer. Father in heaven, How we glorify Thee, uh, and how we praise Thee, that the Lord Jesus has died, been buried, been raised from the dead, has ascended into heaven, has poured forth His Spirit, and that our Savior is our advocate in the throne room of God. Uh, against the accusations that come against us and that the Holy Spirit is our advocate in our own conscience who applies um, inwardly thy promises uh, in our minds, in our hearts, uh, Lord, against the attacks of the enemy, whether it be the devil or whether it be any of those who follow him. Lord, we praise Thee for giving to us the greatest gift, that is Thyself. We pray, our Lord, teach us wisdom from the words and the actions of the Lord Jesus. Help us, Lord, to be sensitive in the way that we present the truth um, and, and to use Thy Word uh, in a way uh, that will be most helpful and expedient uh, to people uh, who need Jesus Christ. And even within our families, and even with our fellow Christian brethren, Lord, to, to be ever wise 
and uh, to, to use thy word in the most profitable way possible. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.